Hey, this is Ed Pedersen, and you're listening to episode two of the slide area, all things slide guitar, pedal steel, lap steel, dobro, Indian, Eastern, Western, and of course, bottleneck style. Over the coming weeks, I'll be bringing you some of the greats of slide guitar that I've been interviewing over the last year and will continue to interview for my upcoming book, which should be done and out in 2017. But until then, I've decided to share these interviews with you all, and hopefully you will glean as much as I have and learn as much as I have, and it'll uh, bring something to your playing and give you some new perspective. Episode two features my very, very dear friend, Mr. Al Perkins. Al's career stretches from 1970 all the way to the present. His first band was Shiloh with future eagle Don Henley and record producer Jim Ed Norman. He was in the Flying Burrito Brothers with Graham Parsons. He was in Manassas with Stephen Stills, went on to work in the Souther Hillman Fure Band, and played on many, many other records of other great artists, including Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. So, sit down, grab a beverage, and dig in to episode two of The Slide Area with Al Perkins. So basically, the focus of this whole thing is, you know, trying to give some uh, insights from, from you know, big-time players for people who are studying slide. Um, and so what I, what I'd like, one of the things, one of the first things I want to know is like, you know, I've seen you play everything. I've seen you play uh, pedal steel. I've seen you play dobro, banjo, but I've also seen you play regular guitar. So... What, which one attracted you first and how did you, did you start playing like standard tuning guitar first and then switch over to the open tuned instruments and, or how did that work for you? Well, actually, uh, when I was, uh, yeah, I guess I was nine years old whenever we lived in West Texas, still had dirt streets, you know, the whole boom was happening. And so my father, uh, uh, moved us out there to try to take advantage of work. And um, one Saturday, there was uh, a guy with a briefcase walking these dusty streets and just finding out if uh, anyone in the household would like to learn Hawaiian steel guitar. Uh, Hawaiian steel guitar was made popular from uh, a, uh, a radio show that would come live from through the cable under 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 the water, you know, under the Pacific. Mm. It would come across, uh, they would be doing it over there around 12 or 1 o'clock, and it, and it would be like 5 or 6 o'clock uh, in Texas. And uh, people would tune into that. It was very exotic type music, but identifiable because it was, it had some elements of, uh, say, the early uh, bluegrass, maybe, you know, except slowed down sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, my dad asked me, uh, he liked country music, so he asked me, um, would you be interested? My son, my my, uh, my brother was too young to 
even uh, paying attention to music. So I was around nine, and I said, well, I don't know what it is. He said, well, you've heard it on the radio, and um, and we listened, We used to listen to the, uh, the uh, Louisiana Hayride, which we could pick up about 500 miles away when the atmospheric skip was working, and he, Dad would put a ground in the... Uh, uh, you know, a, a wire in the ground and kind of help ground it and pick it up. Hmm. So, um, and they had all kinds of music on that show, the Louisiana Hayride, you know, Elvis and and uh, a lot of other people, James Burton got his start there. And so they would play rockabilly and, and just straight country music. So he kind of pointed out to me, and I, I still didn't really know exactly what it was, but he says, well, I think the girls like the musicians. <laughs> at nine, I, I was running from girls and didn't want them to play on our you know, softball team or anything else, you know. <laughs> so uh, that wasn't that wasn't a, a good bait for me. But it's, I, I'll try it, you know. So I enrolled in these group lessons. Um, they all issued us. Uh, we all got issued like a, a um, hollow body guitar with the nut raised and the bridge raised so that you could slide a bar across it and back then we would learn Hawaiian songs and most of those were like in uh, sixth tunings or seventh tuning right. uh, but basically you know open tunings with uh, with those notes in it and we would uh, play by tablature you know numbers and uh, the uh, my teacher was a young guy had just newly married he wasn't even 21 yet and um just a genius of a player his name was al petty is, is al petty he's still alive and um phenomenal player and a good teacher too he really really was a good teacher so um he would play us the song for the lesson next week you know before we would take it home with us and when i i would listen to it you know and maybe maybe i'd heard it before on the Hawaii Calls radio show or something, or maybe played on a local radio show. And I would sort of uh, memorize it best I could and just play it, and I didn't really apply myself to working with the tablature. So um, I'd come back and play it in the way I heard it, and he asked for, to see my father after one lesson, uh, one of these lessons, it was down the road a piece. And I said, you know, I noticed your, your son is not playing tablature, but he's playing by ear. And turning point in my learning process was the fact that uh, Al Petty asked my father, said, if you can afford to give him private lessons, I can teach him twice as fast by year. So that was that was a good uh, help for me. Not I, I wouldn't realize it. I just thought he was ready to kick me out of class, you know. <laughs> so anyway, all of that was done with those uh, plastic bars with lead in them, and they're called Black Raja bars. And... Um, other bars similar were some of them were flat like the Dobroys play you know um, but I didn't have a steel bar till way later oh, and okay. uh, learned how to play Hawaiian music he uh, started taking me and an older student out to some of these jamborees he played in a popular country band back then and um, he would use us to play you know like a trio uh, harmony part on instrumentals or solo we'd want and uh, we would play together and advertise at school and then um, I got into rock and roll when the Beatles came out 
and Ventures, you know, and those guys. And uh, my dad had played some guitar and taught me how to play, and I I started playing, learning the chords and stuff, and trying to play uh, play that for about eight years until I was in a group that knew I played steel guitar, and so I I got a steel guitar again. This time I uh, tried to pull out the same little bar that I used, but uh, it uh, it was cracked, so I started gravitating to steel bars. And I never tried, um, well, I've tried, but I've never uh, professionally played bottleneck-type guitar, um, seeing as how I'm, it's more comfortable for me to look down and, and uh, with my left hand, left is uh, lowering and, and right is raising, you know, instead of upside down, you know, with your, with your bar, with your fan, it's just kind of a thing with your ergonomics, I guess. Right. But uh, those, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I admire those, uh, Sonny Landreth and, and Rick Vito and some of those guys who play play slide uh, that way and play it well. And it's, it's hard to be accurate that way, uh, but even Bonnie Raitt plays it accurately, so it, it can be done, you know. <laughs> yeah. I say even, she's one of the premier, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed, yeah, it seems to me... You know, in some ways, I wish I had gone with the lap style because the the bottleneck style, man, it takes a lot of work. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, you know, just like um, steel guitar bars are are mostly solid bars, but um, the uh, hollow uh, uh, slides for the guitarist, I've noticed, and I've got a bunch of those things just playing around with them. Um, a lot of them. Uh, use the uh, the old uh, coruscant bottle size and sound, you know, to to the new slide. Some of them are closed in, and some of them are open all the way through. Mm. And they all have a different tonality. It's amazing. And the brass or the bronze, uh, they have a uh, maybe a. I guess one would be a little bit more delta, and the other one would be more. Um, I don't know, smoother maybe. Right. You know? And like we'll keep... glassy for the glass and uh, and raucous for the for the metal. <laughs> and and what kind of bar specifically are you you using now? Is there a particular model that you're using? That yeah, you know I, I don't have anything that's normal. <laughs> My steel guitars are made in Australia, and I use an old '50s lap steel and '40s lap steel, and, and uh, so nothing is normal. But I, on the bar end of things. Um, whenever I I purchased um, Tom Brumley's 11 string ZV Custom, uh, I noticed he was using like a 7 8 bar, um, and I had been using a much smaller bar, you know, like three quarter uh, or even half, you know, early on. Mm. And um, and he had a very very good tone. I noticed that. Sneaky Pete, when I went to California, he was using, I think, like a one-inch bar, you know, and his um, his strings were strung out longer on a longer scale on the Fender steel guitar, and I don't know what gauge he had, but he had the, the thing tuned to a B-flat, huh. which uh, is, would be very low, you know, and with a heavy bar, it's, I don't know, I, I, it'd be hard for me to play that, but... The ones I use now uh, for the pedal steel are hollow. Um, I've made a three-eighths um, 
three-eighths, no, three-sixteenths wall thickness uh, all throughout the bar, including the round nose. Mm -hmm. I, I asked them to mill it out where the nose would have the same density as the walls of the long part. And um, don't know if that helps or not, but it, I like it. You know, I like it. It's uh, less weight to move quickly, mm -hmm. and it has the the circumference to to really sound well, sound good. You know, and the hardness to resist wound strings on the low end uh, where they last a long time. So that's kind of what I use there. Um, I use um, I have tried that sawing those down lengthwise to use for the dobro um, on the seven eight hollow mm -hmm. round nose and uh, I like the round nose where I can you know tip the bar and kind of slide it and and or isolate the strings um, to, to my way of thinking it's like dobro players they usually can use a snub nose bar where they can pop the string when they pull it back off of it mm -hmm. like a lot of what I can do like a hammer on would be for a guitar it's kind of like a hammer off for uh, dobros and gets an extra note without plucking it but mm -hmm. I'm not so much into that with the uh, steel guitar I, I've taught by Al Petty how to bounce the bar and you can do that in single strings or double strings mm -hmm. and um what other kind of bars do I have? Uh, that's about, that's my favorite. Oh, I, I should say this. Um, when I started using the Australian steel guitar, um, a single 11 with a double, or one and a half width carriage, um, he, he made a very, very uh, hard uh, bar that's three quarters. And um, I really have been getting used to those through the years. They're so hard that they resist anywhere on the on the bottom end where the large wound strings are, mm -hmm. and um, they're easier enough for me to manage, you know, with my with uh, bar slants, and uh, they're just just right. They're a little shy of of the width of the eleven string. Um, however, the, he has a slight taper from the nut to the changer, but. Um, um, I find it very comfortable, you know. Mm. So basically, when I open up a case nowadays, if it's a ZV case, it's got the um, seven eighths, or if it's a Dobro case, it's a cut down seven eighths generally. Huh. Uh, and then when I open up the uh, Anapad case, it's it's his bars, you know, the three quarter uh, super hard uh, uh, material. And um, and some of my old old steels, I still use some of the old bars that are like um, one of them I think I have a three quarter in it and I still keep for keepsake I keep one of the old black Rogers that was cracked you know yeah <laughs> 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 do you uh, uh, what what tuning are you favoring on uh, each of these uh, open tuned instruments starting well you know um, I uh, I learned you know in with bluegrass that the the uh, the main tuning of, of choice was the open G tuning. Right. Uh, would be from the top to the bottom. It would be D B G and then repeated D B G. Mm. So you have three sets of octaves. You have your fifth together or your thirds, and um, 
sometimes you can lower a string and just and use it as a minor tuning, which is pretty quick to do. Mm-hmm. One string, or you can, uh, if you're in a low enough tuning with the tension with a dobro, you can you can actually raise a string to grab a sixth or a seventh if you're into the swing kind of a thing. So those are very versatile. What I generally use, and I sometimes I'll tune it to an F. Uh, minor or F six or seven and go down it depends upon the song and feel um, but usually, usually on the dobro G is about as high as I want to go I can also use the capo which is uh, something that uh, slide players on guitar may not may or may not use I see some use it some of them don't but uh, they're clamp on these, these things with the strings higher on the slide guitars, lap steels, and dobros, for instance, um, you couldn't clamp it down on the string. For one thing, you don't have a fret to clamp it behind, you know, a physical fret. Mm. So they have these things. Um, Shub makes them, and Liberty, I think, Liberty Banjo made some, and Shub makes them, where they just they uh, have a little, um, little round shaft it's covered in um, one of those, um, what do they call it? Um, the tubing that doctors use, you know, the clear tubing for different oh, yeah. instruments. Yeah, whatever that is. I got a whole wall, uh, roll of that stuff. And those slip on either end of that with a shaft that holds the, uh, suspends that, uh, it's generally a hex shaft, like an Allen wrench, mm-hmm. but a straight one. Mm-hmm. So you run this uh, tubing over it, clear tubing over it, surgical tubing, that's what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. And you have it in to measure it, you know, and all that, and it'll go over this uh, suspended uh, hex shaft. And then um, you turn the between the third and the fourth strings, if it's a six-string instrument, you slide it in between those two strings uh, along, you know, laterally along the, the way the string runs, then you twist it, which leaves the body across the top of the string and the shaft underneath, and it has a little cam that you just flip the cam, or some people use a screw, uh, a wing nut, and you tighten it up over the, the fret that you wanna wanna be at. So, so that's how we do it without a clamp-type capo. And you find you're pretty comfortable with that. It works pretty. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you lose a little bit of bottom, but you're going up the scale anyway if you're using it, you know. Uh, so the high strings sound really cool, you know, yeah. whenever you're, you're, you're clamped up about, you know, three to five to seven. Uh, I don't go much higher than that. Right, but, raising uh, that tension. Yeah, yeah. I use that more on the folk and bluegrass things, mainly on the on the dobro. But I can use it on the lap steel. Mm-hmm. Although I I've uh, I've not done it many times, you know. Now on the the um, I have a non-pedal ten string that this fellow Noel Anstead in Australia made. It's the instruments he makes are called. Anapeg, A-N-A-P-E-G, and they're they're probably the best in the world. Best woods, best, I mean, he just, everything is, you can shave in the surfaces and, you know, and and no hard things to get against your leg or your finger or hands like some of them 
you know, are made here. Yeah, I remember when you first got that. Yeah, the pickups are just incredible. He's got a single pole pickup that is is a powerful or more powerful than the humbucker, and yet he's got the lower, he's got a fuller range on a single pole than anybody can get and lower noise. And so I don't know, it's they wind things differently down there, particularly him. He's just kind of a genius at it. <laughs> and so, you, uh, you got that in what, an E9 tuning or something? Yeah, that's an E9 tuning, just a standard uh, commercial E9. I don't have the C6 neck. Um, now, on the on the eight-string that he built without pedals, it's uh, I, I, I wanted it for a standalone C6 if I got called for Western Swing or Jazz or what. Right. And um, I like the older style rather than the pedal style anyway on that. But that's that would be uh, G-E-C-A, uh, G-E-C-A again. Did you learn on non-pedal style? Yes. Uh, and, and when I learned was the Hawaiian music, and of course all those were just started out acoustic guitars with raised nuts. But then uh, on one of my birthdays, my parents bought me a, um, one of those Alamo amps. You know, mm-hmm. yep. And and a, a wooden amp with an A on it, and I believe it was a. Uh, let me see. I believe that was. A, I'm trying to remember the name of the guitar. I didn't keep it for too long. I traded it in for another, for a, um, a bigger guitar. But it was one of the Hawaiian uh, made made guitars. So basically, you were like. Like, well, who was it? Don Helms in the Drifting Cowboys. That was like he was a non-pedal steel pedal, non-pedal pedal steel player, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's how you really started too, right? And that kind of vibe before you went to the pedal pedal steel. Yeah. 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 Oh, that it's hard, man, to get those Western swing guys. I, I admire the heck out of the the guys that still go without the pedals and. You got to move that bark pretty quick, but it's it's a different sound, a different feel, a different soul. Jerry Bird was probably the best at both worlds when it comes to non-pedal. Uh, everybody quotes him as being a major influence, you mm-hmm. know, up to Jimmy Day and Buddy Emmons and Curly Chalker and a bunch of those people because he could play all of it, play beautiful Hawaiian things, but then he could uh, make you believe he had pedaled, you know? Right. And it, it was so sad he was doing a lot of sessions here um in the early days in nashville and when pedals came out everybody had to have a pedal steel on their record well he could do it without doing the pedals but if they didn't see the pedals then well we want pedal steel you know (laughs) and he had more heart and soul and tone than than most of the others anyway (laughs) kind of kind of sounds like today's business a little hey al i think you're right (laughs) <laughs> just high you know you just got to put like a cape or uh, some sort of uh uh you know uh, uh thing to cover the front of the pedal steel so they can't see your feet <laughs> yeah. right yeah you know yeah. Uh, in the big bands uh i don't know if you've seen any pictures like speedy west and some of those guys that played out on the west coast and those yeah. big bands. yeah they would have people would make these big leather hand tool things that go across and it says the band's name kind of like a drum uh, head, you know, and uh, or the and or the the player's name, and that was it's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
All right. So, uh, uh, and your lap, your lap steel is just a basic open tuning. Uh, yes, it's a basic open tuning, and um, I find that I can use either an F tuning or a G tuning for most things. If I, yeah, I can use larger strings that way for maybe a little fuller sound. And if I need to go higher, then I can use that capo if we're in A or B mm. or whatever. Gotcha. And you're using, if I remember, you're using thumb picks and finger picks, right? That's correct. Yeah, I, I uh, sort of, uh, well, <laughs> you can hear the click of the finger picks on a lot of the early recordings when I was playing, playing it with uh, steel, like with Flying Rio Brothers or Manassas sometimes. But mm -hmm. But uh, now I've, I've uh, gotten to where I enjoy just playing with a thumb pick and fingers on guitar, but I don't ever do that with uh, with the slide instruments. I always use the uh, the the, um, the picks on it. And those are metal, just, as I recall, right? You got the metal ones? Yes, I have metal. Uh, when we first started back then, I think National made only one style of pick. And they were pretty hard material. They didn't come in gauges like you can get now with its, its cuticle savers. Another cuticle saver is that they would make the top of the band that you bend over your finger wider and rounder, so that you could, and you could get a a a, a gauge that is thinner, and you could actually uh, take a little pair of pliers and bend it to fit your finger really well. Oh, okay. So. Dunlop makes those now. I think National still makes the old style and some of the new style. Uh, another thing that was popular back then that I played for a little while was plastic finger picks. Right. And the way that you made those fit your finger was put them under hot water and then hold them apart while you're doing the water, if you could do that, and then put cold water on after you slip it on your finger and it kind of stays in the same position. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, I've always had trouble with those, but I should try that. Yeah. Yeah, you can break them in the same procedure, but uh, that that's the best way I know. And, and what brand metal ones are you using right now? The National still? Or? Uh, I think uh, most, of, I have a mixture, but I think most of mine are Dunlop. Okay. Now. Yeah, Dunlop, and I love the clear Dobro thumb picks, but I'm, they're harder to find now, so I've gone to National thumb picks and uh, National is also a company that I believe still makes uh, finger picks as well and there are some custom guys out there making some really good good stuff uh, they're a little more costly because they can't you know but can't afford to um, keep up with the big companies I'm trying to trying to look in my um, little let's see here yeah guy at the uh, steel guitar show handed me uh some of these they're they're uh he's making the pre-war style finger picks like i was talking about oh. made from uh, pure german nickel silver and pre-buffeted and it's got the pre-war shape and tone he's in uh, he's in uh, rowlett texas and his name is bill stokes and uh the, his name of his pickups are i mean uh, pick finger picks or showcase and the ones that I that he gave me at the show these uh, are called showcase 41s which was pre-war uh, metallurgy and and, and uh, manufacturing style 
Ah, interesting. And yeah, um, yeah. And and um, <clears throat> as far well, um, before I get to your amps, I want to ask you about your amps because I know you and I have had some experience with them recording. Um, <clears throat> but uh, one thing I was wondering uh, how. Uh, this could be interesting to like younger players is how many hours a day did you focus on your slide playing and how long did it take you till you felt you were competent? Hmm. Uh, good question. Uh, well, at nine years old, it was hard to me to sit down and play music by myself, but my mother would make me sit down and play. Um, <laughs> in practice, you know, maybe an hour a day. Um, but, you know, during that hour, she would come in and say, hey, stop that diddling, you know, play a song. <laughs> well, you know, when you're learning how to play, you kind of want to know where, what goes where and how what this does. And, and that's the way you learn, you know, is just diddling around. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, I would go ahead and pacify my mom and just play a song or something. But um, I think, you know, uh, there are guys that just stay on it Constantly. I mean, my my steel guitar teacher, Al Petty, he can practice eight hours a day, just barely taking breaks, you know, and just comes up with these phenomenal things. He's got a 17-string, um, what he calls a um, steel a harp, S-T-E-E-L-A-H-A-R-P. That's the only one in existence is the ones he's made. Huh. But he's got a longer bar. He's uh, he's got he's 17 to 21 strings. He's made a 21, but I think he's playing a 17. And it takes a mathematical mind to play and be able to rehearse that much and just right. go for things that you don't know how to do. But I'd say, if, uh, generally speaking, if a student would be diligent and, and practice, uh, you know, 40 minutes to an hour a day, I think that would be, be they would find, uh, and they may find that they just love it so much they stay on it, which is anything more than an hour is, uh, is uh, Joel Saunier says, spicing on the cake. Yeah, and it took you, like, when, when were you, like, uh, felt like, you, well, when did you get comfortable with going out and I'm going to play in a band and, and I'm doing it and I'm, I'm you know, you <laughs> Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think how old I was when I got in the first band. I think it was right after my teacher, Al Petty, went to California to play with uh, uh, Smokey Rogers and his band out in San Diego. Um, but I'd say um, maybe 12, 12 or 13. Mm. And uh, since I was in West Texas, you know, there was these high school age guys, you know, that that played really good country music, you know, in the Hank Williams style. And so I've got pictures of me with uh, my first triple neck magnetone uh, stand-up steel, had legs. And uh, I must have been around, you know, between 12 and 14 then. And uh, I never never stopped playing in bands after that. It was, uh, after that was a, a band that played on local television a lot, different shows uh, called, um, the first one was called uh, Hank, Hank Telford and the Rhythm Makers, and the second one was called uh, Frank Dickens and the Trailblazers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Trailblazers had these moccasins and fringe suits like Pioneers. You might see Pioneers because our sponsor was Pioneer Furniture, 
So on the back of the set uh, every week, they had this Conestoga wagon with Pioneer written across the back of it, you know, with the white part. Yeah. And um, and we're set. We're sitting around there playing like around a campfire. So that was a uh, pedal steel. That was when the pedal steel first came out, and my mother and dad were not rich by any means. My mother took a part-time job, and my dad worked in the oil field driving trucks. And so um, a car would cost maybe three thousand dollars, you know, back in the mid '50s, you know, like on the low end of new cars. Right. And uh, they laid out a thousand dollars for me to have the first Fender pedal steel that came through West Texas. Hmm. And uh, so I was in great demand all of a sudden, but I spent a lot of time underneath it trying to figure out where all the, there wasn't an instruction book of how to do it, you know. You just listened to a record, if you missed it, you, you didn't have a recorder, so you just remembered what the sound looked like hmm. and tried to duplicate that underneath that guitar trying to hook up the strings. Thankfully they were cable driven and you could just unhook them and hook them on or lowering or raising on any string. And the funny thing about it is Al Petty had been out there working with Fender on uh, and, and another guy, uh, uh, Bill, um, Bill, what was his last name? Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, he was working on that very guitar for production for Fender. Huh. Fascinating. And um, so, what what amps are you using now? What, what like have you changed well, since the last time I saw you? No, uh, I uh, uh, another another genius that came along that I met. <laughs> this guy knew Al Petty because he worked at Fender. His name is Bob Rissy. Uh-huh. R-I-S-S-I, and um, uh, Leo Fender hired him at about the age, tender age of 19, because he was such a whiz, immediately put him to work on transferring the Tweed uh, top-mounted controls into the piggyback or the uh, combo front-mounted controls. So, you know, that would been the early chocolate-covered, you know, Tolex and, and all that stuff. So he worked on the piggyback. Uh, assembly. So this, the amp later on, to make a long story short, I played his amps um, um, out when I went to California in 68 and 9. 68, I came back here in 69 into Texas and then went back in 70. And I played uh, his Rickenbacker uh, Transonic 200 with steel and with uh, guitar. That was that super beetle looking beautiful uh Rickenbacker amp, and he started making his own in the early 70s, and I've played Rissen amplifiers, either solid state or tubes, uh, all the, all this time. I have both. Um, the one that I record with that you're familiar with is a, call, is a prototype. They only had 24 chassis made, and they sat in there from the mid-60s till the time I asked him if he had uh, a small amp in mind that I could carry in for a session and sound good and, and carry out easily and he came up with this STA which is, uh, stands for Super Tube Amp it's about a 60 watt uh, amp designed after the same circuit as the as the basement that uh, that he first worked on with uh, Leo Fender oh. and, and that basement that Leo Fender designed 
of God, you know, and the talent he had was the same thing that James Marshall copied, except he inverted it and had the this tube standing up, you know, instead of hanging down. Right, right, and then changed the circuit a little around to get more gain out of it. Yeah, like yeah. a preamp, preamp thing, yeah. Yeah, so, oh, so that, that amp that you use that sounds amazing, the STA that I've recorded you with, that's not a big amp. It's not super big, Ben. That's 60 watts, eh? Yeah, it's 60 watts, and uh, it's in a very small cabinet because that was one of my requests and mm-hmm. to be able to carry. But when I got to looking at it, to play steel through it um, and to get the low end, that uh, the best speaker available at the time was the uh, JBL, JB Lansing D120. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it would get enough bottom, but see, the problem with that shallow cabinet is it doesn't develop any natural cabinet uh, bottom, and it's an open back, too. Mm-hmm. So you're losing losing uh, all of that low-end stuff right and left. So what he did was he put in the uh, JBL 130. I said, well, you know, one thing I don't like about JBLs is they don't really, you know, cry if you want them to cry. And they're all really, they're real clean. It's really great for steel, but for lap steel, I need something that's edgy. And so he said, okay. And I said, also, I don't like the little edgy sound that the metallic voice coil cover, the dust cover on the on the front of the speaker makes whenever yep. you've got the top end going. And he said, I'll fix that. He said, he, his father worked for Altec Lansing. I believe it was Altec Lansing. And he he took it home. He had a, a, a lab in his house and he he put a paper dome over the voice coil which smoothed it right out so that was my secret for a long time that the paper dome on the JBL is the way to go and um, the the other thing about playing lap steel through it is I had to have a gain a preamp gain sort of like James Marshall did to the basement so he did his version of it which is very, very smooth and very sweet. And um, depending on tubes, it'll take, uh, you can use uh, KT-88s, you can use uh, 6550s or 6L6s. They all have a slightly different response, you know. Mm. And uh, one one thing about the JBL, the old JBL, maybe till to this day, they were guaranteeing their speakers lifetime warranties. So, mm. hmm. so people were playing them so hard you know, like the Dick Dales and everybody, they were playing them so hard that they would they would kick out of the excursion or the range that the magnet would hold the voice coil and rip the rip the cone. <laughs> and they'd have to replace the cone and put the thing back together for free. <laughs> and so they, the engineers reckon that, hey, we've got a, such an exp- efficient speaker that we can have this thing uh, work backwards and put out as much sound as anybody else. Uh, and if they play it hard, it'll just bottom out against the magnet frame, you know, the, the bottom of the, the, the metal part in the back. It mm-hmm. won't go pulling the, uh, the cone all to pieces. Huh. So, so <laughs> Bob Reese told me that and said, now look, you know, if you want this thing to push, which there is a difference in the sound, pulling, you know, is a softer sound. Pushing is the Altec, more the Altec landing design. So you just reverse your your red wire and your black wire, and you've got it made. You know, you're pushing with a JBL. 
But if you wire a red to red and black to black on JBL and mix it with any other speaker, you're out of phase. Gotcha. So, so that's that's my little trick on the amp. And of course, the genius behind it is Bob Reese, who still makes great amps. He has a new new amp for guitarists that's uh, started out with called a Marvel. It was like a little piggy bag, sounded like a big amp, you know. Yeah. And um, but I'm using a, an old Celestion 12 in a sloped front cabinet, pine cabinet, and uh, a little piggyback on top, and it's a tube amp that's around, well, it's 40 watts now, the, the, the marbles are like 15 or 20, and they sound really good. How do you spell I, Reese, by the way? Uh, uh, his name is Robert, uh, R-I-S-S-I, Reese. Reese, okay, and, gotcha. Yeah. Now, he has a, a little piece on the, um, I think the soul of tone, the one that, uh, the book, the hardback coffee table book that was written about um, Fender. Yeah. Fender amps. Uh, it was written by a guy named Wheeler, and he goes all the way back and traces all the amps. He has a he's mentioned in there and his pictures in there, but it's whenever um, CBS. He he stayed in with the company until CBS kind of started changing so many things in gotcha. the 60s or late 60s. Around 67 or 8, that's when he went to Rickenbacker because CBS wanted him to make a solid state amp, and he did, but they wouldn't give uh, them enough uh, R&D money to put in like military grade PC boards. So the problem similar the problem came similarly that JBL had that when these these guys would take them on the road or get out there and drop them. Uh, if they crack that uh, cheap PC board, you're, they, they got to send them back and repair them for free. Uh. So he he just said, you know, the ones he made uh, were pulled back. Um, they were they uh, they were the they, I think they show these things in that book. They're space age, very space age thing, like a like a basement top or a showman top would be very slim and very narrow and they, they had brushed aluminum facings that came down at an angle and then went back like a point, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, the controls were on the top of that of that brushed aluminum slant. It was beautiful and powerful and very clean, you know, it was before, you know, before people wanted to get all the dirt on it, you know? And um, he made those and, um, and of course, CBS wouldn't put good components in them, so they had problems with them. So he said, you know, I, I, I've been asked by, you know, uh, um, I forgot his name, Henry, I don't know, uh, what is his name? The, anyway, the guy that, that owned uh, Rickenbacker. Mm -hmm. Hall, maybe? Uh, I can't remember exactly. Anyway, Hall said, I want you to come over and I'll give you all the money you need to put in good components. Well, where he ran into the, and he did build an excellent amp, but whenever Steppenwolf and Zeppelin started using them, you know, they wanted to change out different speakers because they were using some benign speaker called, a, it was a Utah or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, no, don't mean to knock Utah, I don't know if they're still in business or not. But when they wanted different things, uh, you know, the John Hall or whatever his name was, he said, no, no, they get, they just get it just at stock. We don't make any changes, blah, blah, blah. So they would give good ingredients in the, in the mix, but no service. 
whereas Fender would give great service but no good huh. ingredients on the solid state. Gotcha. So anyway, I played one of those and I loved it. And uh, but I did change out the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, then he started building his own amps and um, and and people would love them. I mean, I still got some of the early. I played one, played them in Manassas, you know. And they sound like a tube. They pump like a tube. And um, he, uh, people would say, man, this sounds great. He says, but where are the tubes? And they look in the back and there's no tubes. There's solid state. Oh, well, man, I, I, I thought it was saw. I thought it was tubes. We want a tube, you know. Huh. And then he thought to himself, well, I'm getting this every, every, every uh, once in a while. I'm getting people loving it but not liking it because it didn't have tubes. And he said, well, I've been... That's how I got started, doing tubes. That's the easiest thing to do, you know. So he started hand-wiring all of his amps. The ones all that I have are all hand-wired and, and old components. And um, they just sound different. They, they've got harmonics going on in them and warmth yeah. that you just don't get, even in the new copies of, of those, you know, because the components are all different now. Yeah, no but they can, they can get close. I mean, Bob is having to slowly but surely, since he's... He depleted his uh, supply of, um, they gave him all of those resistors and capacitors and stuff that they weren't going to be using in solid state. They just said, you, we'll either dump them or you can take them. So he took them. And um, he, he used all of those that uh, he had and could get a hold of. He bought, a, uh, gosh, hundreds or not thousands of parts while they were still available. So, um, but he's really happy with this new Marvel. And uh, he's calling this... Um, 40 watt and AP 40 and so I got my initials on one of them ah, that's crazy uh, um, uh, and and you you have your own uh, uh, Dobro the signature Dobro with uh, Gibson back in 2001 right yes uh -huh. they uh, they were kind enough to to make one like I I, I had dreamed about you know and it's uh, black with gold trim and a little bit of etching on it um, nice. now, however unfortunately they've They've uh, changed uh, a lot of things over there, and, oh, yeah. and uh, they cut down on their uh, specialty products uh, quite a bit. And I think they're racing toward the the uh, rock stars and whatever they want. They're gonna they're gonna be there for them, which makes sense. But they had a really really good acoustic division there. That were Richie Owens was a part of that. Oh yeah, I remember uh, Richie. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and so they uh, they really had a good quality bluegrass instrument uh, division, you know. And Bozeman, I guess, is still going for guitars and maybe some things. But I think yeah, they're they're offering just one dobro, and it's just a generic thing, yeah. like made in made in overseas. I don't yeah, know. yeah. What about them? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I I as I recall, you use a couple of pedals, but not many, right? A couple of what? Of, of effect pedals. Oh yeah, I I uh, the reason why I wanted to move the power up when we we had a little group here that a lot of us uh, uh, just get together and play restaurant every once in a while or something. So I uh, I wanted uh, I like the sound of the marble, but I wanted more power so I could just instead of go back and and change the amp setting every every other song. Or I could use this the visual sound pedals. You know, I became friends with them, and yeah. they're now they're now changing their name to Trutone. They bought the old Trutone radio 
the rights to that uh, logo and everything. So they're going to be called True Tone, but their stuff is excellent stuff, and it sounds like me trying to overdrive one of Bob's amps is the reason I like them. And, um, what do you and use in the Route 66? And, and, uh, I'll pedal a little simulator, Leslie, and uh, you got to go online. It's just amazing. Yeah. So how many oh, of those oh. are you, were you using, like, the Route 66 drive and... And I have I have one of those overseas. I've got a set of equipment over there. Similarly, I've got the one that's kind of the H2O, which is the uh, uh, Echo and the um, Chorus. You know, it's a double 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 right. sided pedal, a wider pedal. Right. And uh, the Doctor Jekyll and, and Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Uh, that that's the one that I favor for uh, most things. Now I have a. When I'm just going out with a one, like a lap steel or something, I've got a small bone uh, pedal board. Yeah. That, I, that I've got the, um, it's a half Jekyll and Hyde. It's, I don't forget whether it's Hyde or Jekyll, but it's, a, <laughs> it, it's not a two stage, uh, it's just a one stage. And then I've got the uh, the the H2O, um, let's see, what is that? That's just the chorus, it's just the chorus pedal. Uh, um, it's a single width, you know, instead of the H2O yep. double width. Got that and a tuner and just away you go. You know? No compression or anything going on? No, I've never been a compression guy. Uh, I, I've tried those. I've tried the uh, all kinds of things that came out. You know, I've been thinking about getting my old thing built back in the 60s uh, or, or early 70s. It's an uh, octave divider. Yeah. And one of those Mutrons, it was electric, you had to plug it in. But I've been thinking about toying with that again, so we'll yeah. see. And um, so I have, I'll just a couple more questions and I'll let you go. Um, uh, first question is, do you do any damping in front of the bar with your fingers on strings that aren't being played? Or do is all of your damping done with the heel of your hand? Uh, uh, you you sort of uh, broke up there on the very front. Did you say damp, dampening? Yeah, like some some slide players don't damp in front of the bar at all, or if they do, they use their heel of their of their uh, of their picking hand, and then and then other guys like Sonny and a few others, they they actually damp certain strings that they're not playing with the fingers that they're not using. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I don't do that. I love his style. Uh, incidentally, I think uh, I met him a time or two at uh, James Burton's guitar shows down there, and uh, I like I like his. Uh, he's one of my favorite slide things and um, slide guys, and as well as David Lindley was going whenever I got started. So he was another one that I listened to. Um, but I uh, I have it on 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 steel or lap steel. Even Dobro, I think I, it's almost a subconscious thing. Um, I I generally do the dampening with uh, my palm of my picking hand. Right. And um, but on occasion, I I try not to lift the bar if I can help it. Uh, I, a while back, I was teaching my son Jess how to play, and he's playing one of my old some of my old stuff, and. Um, he'd have a tendency to raise his bar up and put it down. And, and it's a real jerky, like, uh, you know, staccato mute is real kind of jerky sounding. Right. So um, so I told him just to keep that bar on the string at all times. 
and and dampen it with your right hand or come back on your volume pedal a little bit and get used to that then you can make it sound smoother smoother transitions interesting um, and, and, and finally, do you have any, uh, anything that I might not have asked you, any tips or tricks or, or insights that you want to add or, or, or advice? Uh, uh, harmonics uh, was something we didn't talk about. Okay. Uh, but harmonics is something that I'm pretty, uh, I use quite a bit. That's sort of a trademark. But um, the, uh, there's different ways to do harmonics. You know, you can, if you use the thumb pick, you can, extend the middle finger out back toward the bar and at the 12th fret point from the bar or the 7th or the 5th mm -hmm. from the bar and you can isolate strings like that it's a very bell shiny um, a way of doing it uh, a lot of the older steel players uh, Bobby Garrett and oh gosh uh, probably uh, Jimmy Day and, and Emmons too probably did a lot of that and um, there's that way, and you can get multiple strings that way by raking the thumb, the thumb pick across, um, but holding the middle finger at a bent angle so that it's covering a couple of strings at the same time. Oh, yeah. And that's a difficult move to make. I, I probably could do it if I worked at it for 30 or 40 minutes again, but <laughs> that's a cool way to do it. But what I do, my... I don't hear many people doing it, but what I like to do is, is pairs of strings. Mm -hmm. And I do it by simply putting the palm at the 12th, 7th, or 5th fret away from the bar and, um, and striking two notes with the uh, thumb pick, you know, raking it across. It gives you that bling bling kind of thing, yeah. which is kind of neat, kind of like an echo. And it all also is a very sweet... Uh, harmonic to have the two together you know oh yeah yeah i've heard you do that a ton of times on the stuff that we've recorded and i always wondered how you did that um yeah well that's a, that's another secret <laughs> and and i've also seen you do that with your palm hit the hit the thumb pick and then rake the you would play into the harmonic with the bar oh yeah oh yeah you know when you're when you're I feel, you know, once once you get used to the instrument and you've kind of practiced and rehearsed some of these methods, you know, yeah, it, it gets to where you're trying to, and this is the ultimate of your your goal, is to complement the song. If you know what the song's about, what it's trying to emote or whatever, uh, or the feel of the rhythm section or whatever it is that's moving you, you need to lock into that you know soulfully and try to complement that whether it be fast medium or slow song but when you do that when you identify with the music and just let that move you then it's almost an automatic say uh, you know i know this would sound good here but it's all happens in split second you know right so you just pull out what you feel like that um, through your practicing and through your experience you pull out different riffs or different uh uh, chordal patterns or different uh, positions and or different sounds, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Well, th well, thanks, Al. I really appreciate it, man. You're the best. So that was the wonderful Al Perkins, my good buddy. I've played with him on and off for the last 14 years, and I've 
Learned a tremendous amount just sitting next to him in the studio. He's taught me a great deal, and I hope you got something out of that interview. And we'll continue to be posting interviews in the upcoming weeks and months. I think uh, I'm going to mix it up next time, the next episode, um, instead of going in chronological order, as I have done with the first two. I'm going to start skipping around just to bring it a little flavor. Um, I think we're going to next uh, next episode we're going to feature the great Leroy Parnell. Leroy had a tremendous effect on my career very early on because he broke the mold in Nashville in my eyes and ears, and um, really took. Nashville and country music to new places and new heights and uh, brought the slide guitar back into it, at least uh, the bottleneck style, uh, rather than just pedal steel. So the next episode, episode three, post that in a couple of weeks, that will be with Leroy Parnell. In the upcoming episodes, we have everybody from Sonny Landreth to Vishwa Mohan Bhatt, who I just interviewed in London, and uh, Danny Flowers, um, Calvin Cook, the great Sacred Steel player, uh, Johnny Highland, Jack Pearson. So anyway, lots and lots coming up. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. I appreciate you tuning into the slide area and uh, send those comments, questions, and hopefully encouragements along. This is your host, Ed Pedersen, once again signing off for the slide area. See you next time.